Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part five in this series that we're doing called The Problem of Evil. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, especially episode four, that's going to be really, really key for today's episode. I mean, I really encourage you to go back and listen to all of them because they're all building on concepts and ideas from previous episodes. But, you know, if you haven't listened to episode four yet, you really want to do that before diving into today's episode, because as we get into Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine, it's going to be really important that you understand Origen and you understand the philosopher Plotinus, who we covered in the previous episode. So go back, give that a listen before jumping into today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Shema Apparel. My friends at Shema Apparel are actually doing meaningful work in this particular area of the problem of evil and suffering. They've designed a wonderful ethical fashion brand for men and women that are produced. The clothing is actually produced by survivors of human trafficking from all over the world. And and these survivors are paid a living wage. They work in dignified work conditions, not some sort of sweatshop like where many of much of our clothing comes from. And the clothing is some of the most comfortable clothing I've ever worn. The garments are made from organic natural fibers like organic bamboo. These minimalist bamboo wardrobe essentials are perfect for city wear or travel. Clothing will make you feel good just wearing it, but even beyond that, you'll feel good knowing that you're supporting survivors of human trafficking and helping giving them a long-term sustainable wage. So make sure you check out Shema Apparel, that's S-H-E-M-A, apparel.com, or you can find a link in the description of this podcast. The third through fifth centuries are some of the most important times in church history, especially as it relates to the problem of evil and the subsequent answers Christians would attempt to give to the problem of evil and suffering for generations, for centuries, for even millennia after the fact. During this time, there's three men who are the intellectual giants of the Christian tradition. Those three men were Origen, who we covered in the previous episode, Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century, and Augustine in the end of the fourth century and into the fifth century. In many ways, divisions between how Christians think about theology, the problem of evil, even salvation, can be split along Eastern and Western lines. In the East, it was Gregory of Nyssa who still remains to this very day the forefather of Eastern thought when it comes to the Christian story, while in the West, it was Augustine. In both Catholic and Protestant traditions that would follow, Augustine's thought has been the most influential in church history. Before we talk about Augustine, many of us are, especially those of us like myself who have grown up and lived in America our entire lives and come from perhaps a Protestant background, or even for some of you that come from a more Catholic background, you might not be as familiar with Gregory of Nyssa as you are Augustine. That's because, as we talked about, Gregory of Nyssa has played a far more important role in the theology of the Eastern Church, especially in Eastern Orthodoxy. Understanding Gregory of Nyssa is important because 
Gregory of Nyssa provides with us with a different voice, one that was never called a heretic, one that was never deemed heretical or kicked out of the church, a voice that in many ways is slightly different than that of Augustine who came after him. Gregory of Nyssa lived from 335 to 394 AD, and it's from Gregory and his brother Basil that we get the orthodox ontological description of the Trinity as one essence in three persons. Gregory was instrumental in the formation of Trinitarian theology and the Nicene Creed. Gregory lives in a very Neoplatonist world at the time, and while he never directly quotes Plotinus, we can see evidence of Gregory attempting to defend the Christian story he received within that Platonic worldview. We can also see in Gregory's work the influence of Origen. But unlike Origen, Gregory doesn't offer a, a detailed cosmic backstory for the fall of Satan. Quote, it's not part of my present business to discuss, end quote. But while Gregory doesn't go into as much cosmological detail as Origen proposing theories for the fall of Satan, here's what he does offer. For Gregory, Satan's fall was because he, quote, closed his eyes to the good. It's a really interesting thought that's in keeping with Origen's theology and the work of Plotinus that this idea that evil is a movement away from the good. So it's a really unique contribution of Gregory to say that Satan's fall was a closing of his eyes to the good. Once Satan, quote, who by his apostasy from goodness had begotten in himself this envy, end quote, pulled away from God, he was, quote, propelled with all his might in the direction of vice, end quote. And that again comes from Charlene P.E. Burns' book that we've been referencing throughout this podcast. What was Satan's apostasy? What was the falling away? The falling away of Satan was that he moved away from goodness. He turned away in envy, and with all of his might, he headed in the opposite direction. With all of his weight, the trajectory of this first movement away, he continued onward in that direction of vice. Satan then, for Gregory, turns his attention then, after his fall, to the corruption of humanity. He wants to bring others down with him. He wants others to move away from the good. And so, the fall and corruption of humanity for Gregory is very much in keeping with previous church fathers who assigned primary blame on the fall of humanity to Satan. For Gregory, Satan, quote, persuaded man to become his own murderer with his own hands. Yeah, there's, there's culpability. Humans have culpability. No previous church father has denied this. Humans are culpable for their actions. But here we have Satan, or for Gregory of Nyssa, Satan is just like the way Justin Martyr thought of him, and an origin before him, that Satan is the primary culprit. It was Satan who, in his first movement away, wanted to corrupt humanity, and he did this by persuading them. Persuading them to do what? Well, according to Gregory Nyssa, he is simply persuading them to become their own murderers with their own hands. But humans aren't fated 
to have to fall for Satan's corruption and temptation. God's given humans the capacity of free will to choose between good and evil, between virtue and vice. Again, echoing Neoplatonic thought and origin, for Gregory, evil is not so much a thing to choose as much as it is the result of a misused will. Quote, there's no such thing in the world as evil, irrespective of a will, and discoverable in a substance apart from that, end quote. This is really crucial. Gregory of Nyssa echoes previous church fathers who we might say are, they might have a, what we call a free will theodicy. That is to say, evil isn't a thing in and of itself. Evil is a movement of the will, a will that is free to move towards the good, and in fact, designed to do that. That is the God's intention for all moral agents, is that they would live in keeping with the good, that they would live in keeping with his commands, but that the will is fully capable of moving away from the good. And that movement away from the good is evil. For Gregory of Nyssa, evil is not in and of itself an independent reality. This is like a really crucial thing to get because in, in many ways, when we get to Augustine, we see Augustine echo part of Gregory's theodicy. Evil's not in and of itself an independent reality as if, as if you were at some sort of moral all-you-can-eat buffet and can choose between loading up your plate with stuff from the good section or loading up your plate with stuff from the evil section. Rather, it'd be more akin to being invited to an all-you-can-eat buffet and then taking all the food off the buffet line and dumping it all over the floor. This would be a misuse of the intended good function of the food and the buffet. The food was not intended for that purpose. And yet the potential exists for things to not be used for their good purpose. Hopefully that analogy helps make sense, right? This isn't just a picking and choosing, like you have an equal portion of good, an equal portion of evil available. No, we have a way that God has designed reality to work. And sin and evil is the result of the misuse of that. It's the going through the all-you-can-eat buffet line and misusing the food to maybe have a food fight or just make a mess on the floor. You are not, mis you are not simply choosing an evil item a la carte. <laughs> no, you are, in a sense, willing yourself towards evil by misusing that for its unintended purpose. The intended good for humanity is union with God. This is central to understanding Gregory's work. Union with God is the intended good for humanity. But when humans misuse their potentiality for that good, it's evil. This is what Gregory calls a, quote, retrocession of the soul from the beautiful. All right, so one logical question that might pop into your mind is your kind of thinking through Gregory's theodicy here is, all right, so let's say God does give moral agents, he gives rational souls the possibility of moving away from the good. When did that happen? And why did God allow it to 
keep happening. This is from Charlene P. E. Charlene P. E. Burns' book. Once this movement away from the good had begun, God allowed it to continue until it had, quoting from Gregory of Nyssa here, quote, reached its utmost height, quote, so that when the, quote, healing remedy was applied, it would, quote, pervade the whole of the diseased system. So, in a certain sense, the separation has already begun. The movement away from the good has already begun. Well, why not just stop it right there? Like, why, what does God allow it to keep happening? In a practical sense, like, not to just be so metaphysical here and to be philosophical and just thinking about the sort of cosmological speculations, but in our real day-to-day life here, as we think about our experiences of evil and suffering, and we look around and as Christians, many times we go, you know, why hasn't Jesus come back already? <laughs> like maybe you've asked that question. You look around, you go, you know, it's, it's been a while, you know, 2,000 years since Christ's first coming. Why hasn't he come back? Why are things still like this? Why doesn't God shut down the devil? Why doesn't he end the story right now? It's a great question. Gregory tries to answer it by saying, that God needed, once the movement began, he allowed it to continue so that it would reach its utmost height, the maximum potential for that. And then God would then be able to apply the healing remedy so that it would pervade the whole of the disease system. Once that separation from God had reached its limit, God acts with the intervention of Christ. So for Gregory of Nyssa, Christ comes on the scene at kind of the peak evil of humanity. It's when humanity reached the heights of evil. It's like he conceived of that time in which Christ had entered the world as a time, a very apocalyptic time, because he he didn't think humanity could move further away, right? Which, you know, those of us today might go, boy, Gregory, if you could have only seen the 20th century or maybe some things happening in the world right now. But, you know, that's, that's unfair of us to look back and to say that to Gregory of Nyssa, because there's some awful things happening in the world. Gregory of Nyssa, Nyssa thinks that humanity had reached that point of the, the heights of its evil, and like we couldn't go any farther from God. So then God waits into that point to bring in the, uh, the healing remedy, which is Christ. So God sends and incarnates himself, sends Christ into the world to act against Satan through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And again, Gregory of Nyssa, very in keeping with previous church fathers, sees Christ's death and resurrection, his death as a ransom. Christ ransoms us through Satan in sort of an act of what appears to be like trickery, as we we might read Gregory today. We might look at it and go, I don't know about this, because... Are you saying, Gregory, that God tricked Satan? And it does kind of seem like that. For Gregory, God had had concealed his true divine nature within the human nature of Christ as a, quote, as with a ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh, and thus life being introduced into the house of death might vanish, end quote. So, Jesus on the cross is like the bait 
Satan, why don't you come swallow this up, you who hold the keys to death? Why, why don't you come swallow this righteous man up? Oh, and you didn't realize that in this human righteous one, in this Christ, in this Son of God, is the fullness of deity. And so now you've swallowed him up, but guess what? God can't be held back by death. God can't be consumed by death. And so now the author of life is in the house of death, in Hades, and will triumph victoriously over it. Now, again, those of us that have been raised in more Protestant and Reformed circles that have a heavy emphasis maybe on penal substitution as atonement, and I can't go into all of the different atonement theories, but you can just kind of Google, Google that one. Those of us that are familiar with that particular narrative for understanding the atonement, when they read Gregory of Nyssa, it, it, it seems so weird. Like, are you really saying that God had to trick Satan? But I don't really think that's the, the primary point. The, the primary point for the church fathers is go from really the, the first century all the way here into the fourth century with Gregory of Nyssa. The point is that Christ is victorious over Satan, who, again, they're all of these guys, Gregory of Nyssa going all the way back to, to Clement, have what seems to be pretty consistent with the New Testament, what we might call, and we've called before, a moderate dualism, a moderate cosmic dualism, which is very different than the sort of radical ontological dualism of the Gnostics. They actually do see Satan as a real legitimate foe. Um, people, again, like Justin Martyr, used language that was very in keeping with the New Testament authors and calling Satan the prince of this age. And so Gregory of Nyssa here is actually really consistent with the prior church fathers who held, though not as in, you know, the same sort of regard as maybe the Gnostics who had a sort of evil deity that was responsible for the material world. No, they, they didn't go that far, but there was a moderate dualism here. Satan truly is the one who holds the keys to death, like it says in the book of Hebrews. And so how do we understand how Christ could possibly set humanity free from that if Satan has the keys? And so this is kind of their way of working through that with the goal of describing how Christ was victorious over death to give Christians a hope. What is that hope? What are we hoping for in Christ's death and resurrection? And this is where Gregory sounds an awful lot like Origen. Gregory believed that the New Testament taught that all of the cosmos and every single soul will eventually be restored to unity with God. This is very in keeping with the sort of Neoplatonic thought that eventually everything would be restored to union with the one. But this really isn't the primary drive for Gregoryness. We can see the influence of Neoplatonic thought, and we can see evidence of Originian thought in Gregory's work, but Gregory really claims that he gets this idea from 1 Corinthians 15.28. Gregory claims not to be so much concerned with philosophical thought and making the story fit within a coherent philosophy so much as making it fit with what he understood to be the scriptural teaching. 
In places like 1 Corinthians 15, 28, which concludes a lengthy eschatological explanation from Paul by saying that in the end, quote, God will be all in all, Gregory concluded that there must be a day then when there is no evil in the universe, when there is a universe free of suffering, when there is a universe that is in union with God. And it's not that Gregory didn't believe in a judgment or hell, it's just that he thought that even after the judgment and the wicked souls experience hell, that the fires of hell will serve as purifying fire which burn away all in the will which seeks to move away from God. So to be clear here, Gregory's not saying there's not a judgment day, there's not a hell, but Gregory proposes that in order for God to be all in all, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if that's ever going to come, those fires cannot be eternally tormenting fires, but they are fires of purging and healing. They are fires that remedy the soul and burn away all that would seek to move away from God. Quote, What is then the scope of St. Paul's argument in this place? That the nature of evil shall one day be wholly exterminated and divine, immortal goodness embrace within itself all intelligent natures, so that all of who were made by God, not one shall be exiled from his kingdom. When all the mixtures of evil that like a corrupt matter is mingled in things shall be dissolved and consumed in the furnace of a purifying fire, and everything that had its origin from God shall be restored to its pristine state of purity, end quote. Gregory also says about this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, quote, For it is evident that God will in truth be in all when there shall be no evil in existence, when every created being is at harmony with itself, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, when every creature shall have been made one body, now the body of Christ, as I have often said, is the whole of humanity. End quote. You have to see how in that worldview, in the Neoplatonic world that Gregory of Nyssa is living in, how much this interpretation of 1 Corinthians 15 makes sense. And I think we have to confess to those of us who have been raised in church and Christian settings that taught eternal conscious torment, we have to confess, if we were to sort of step back for a moment and to, to put ourselves in the position of people who have not been raised with that particular end for the wicked, how troubling and unsettling it is. You know, one of the things that's a, a major qualm for people against the Christian notion of God is, etern- is the notion of eternal conscious torment. And I, I'm not giving an argument for or against it, guys. I, I will be clear on, on this point that my own personal perspective is I, I do not hold to Christian universalism. So I'm not making an argument for it. All I'm trying to get us to do is maybe those of us who have only been exposed to something like eternal conscious torment, th- to be able to see how much of a problem this still is in the problem of evil. In fact, maybe in Gregory of Nyssa's mind, this only exacerbates the problem of evil. So what you're trying to say is that evil is always going to exist, but yet it's going to be punished perpetually? I don't think so. You know, for Gregory of Nyssa, he looks at places like 1 Corinthians 15, 
28 and and says, yeah, yeah, I, I acknowledge that there's going to be judgment, that there's going to be fire, but one day, perhaps beyond the judgment, that that fire will purify and return everything to an original state of purity. So uh, you have to understand that this is this is a way for Gregory of Nyssa and many people afterwards. I think you know, a lot of attention has been given recently, and maybe some of you have been following this, maybe you haven't, to David Bentley Hart's new book. And David Bentley Hart, who I, I do, I, I love David Bentley Hart as a philosopher. And again, I've, I've shared this already, um, universalism is not my personal opinion and perspective, but that's not really the point of this podcast. <laughs> I'm really trying to take you through, pers- through the perspective of other people. Uh, for for someone like David Bentley Hart, uh, Christian universalism, the ultimate reconciliation of of all things, is is a way of addressing what he considers and what it appears to be the consideration consideration of Gregory of Nyssa to be to be a way that perhaps this is, might be the only framework in which our current evils and the allowance of that makes any sense. Maybe this sort of allowance, this temporary allowance for things to move away from the good can be justified if in the end that isn't their final state. How much more troubling is it if it is their final state that someone could get to the point where they have moved so far away from the good that they stay locked? This is kind of maybe more like C.S. Lewis's perspective. C.S. Lewis essentially thought, you know, people... You know, hell is a hell is a door locked from the inside. You know, I'm paraphrasing a quote from C.S. Lewis that essentially people can move so far away from the good that they they get perpetually stuck in that state of being. And hell is that existence that's eternally away from the good. And I think we can acknowledge. All right, well, I I can see where Greg Rivnissa and others, you know, origin before him, would have trouble with that and go, oh, man, this only exacerbates the problem of evil. One final quote from Gregory of Nyssa, quote, neither is sin from eternity, nor will it last to eternity. For that which did not always exist shall not last forever, end quote. Okay, that makes a bit of sense, <laughs> you know. I think one of the things that we'll see when we get to Augustine here in a moment is that there's there may be even a flaw with that way of thinking. Neither is sin from eternity nor will it last to eternity for that which did not always exist shall not last forever. Does that mean that there will be a point in which all that exists once again is God who is necessary? I mean, that certainly be one of the implications of Gregory of Nyssa's reading of 1 Corinthians 15, unless you're going to suggest that there is something in creation, whether it is the soul, whether it is spirit, that is also eternally coexistent with God, right? Because if there's going to be a point, if we're going to take Gregory of Nyssa's logic here, and I'm not, I'm not I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm not trying to make an argument against universalism, but just to highlight, this might not tie, tie this all up neatly in the way that Gregory is thinking, and Augustine certainly picks up on this in some way. If only that which lasts forever is that which has been around forever, 
that which has always existed. And he's using this as a sort of defense against the idea that sin and evil will last forever, which we don't want sin and evil to last forever, let me be clear. But if it didn't last forever, and only that which has always been will at one point always be, then will there be no you or me at some point? Will there be a point in which there is no distinction between creature and creator? And if that's the case, in what meaningful way can we say that creation still actually exists? Augustine lived from 354 to 480, and he's by far the most influential and important theologian in church history. His theological journey began as a boy, living in a household with a father who was a Roman pagan and a a mother who he felt was just some sort of superstitious Christian. Before Augustine became a Christian, he was a Manichaean. We talked about Manichaeism back in part three of this series, but Manichaeism was a Gnostic school of thought that had a radically dualist theodicy. In one of Augustine's most important works entitled Confessions, which, side note, might have been the first autobiography ever written in the Western world, Augustine confessed that the biggest appeal of this Gnostic philosophy was how it gave easier answers to the problem of evil. One of these appeals for Augustine was that in the Manichaean school of thought, individuals aren't truly responsible for evil, for evil was the very nature of the material world. If, if evil is the very nature of the material world and our physical existence, what's there to feel guilty about? But as Augustine left Manichaeism and became a Christian in a powerful personal conversion experience, he retained much of his Neoplatonic worldview. Again, going back to our Christ in Culture series, I I don't bring this up to say, well, you see, Augustine was influenced by Platonic ideas, and therefore we should throw out his theology. Hopefully you've picked up thus far, but we can't do that with anybody. (laughs) The goal isn't to go through Augustine's work and label, here's a Neoplatonic idea and here's a Christian idea, but it's to realize that Christ always works through particular people in particular cultures. There's no culture-less Christianity. We could even go back all the way back to over a year ago doing the sort of the science and theology, the Bible and Darwin series that we did, and even talking about Genesis 1 and 2 and understanding those in those ancient Near Eastern contexts. You know, They are writing in a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular culture, in a language that didn't just get dropped down from heaven. Ancient Hebrew existed before the Bible was written down. That's how people were actually able to read it. (laughs) Greek, the Greek language, existed before the New Testament was written down. Those are cultured ways of communicating. There is no cultureless Christianity. So this work is actually a lot more nuanced and difficult than simply going, as many people do with Augustine, but you could pick anybody throughout church history. You know, those that, you know, it's a common thing. You know, I, I really do. I love Justin Martyr. And oftentimes I hear people that don't like Justin Martyr's theology go, well, you can see this guy is just, you know, He's really just importing Greek philosophy. Guys, 
we don't have, as we talked about already with Gregory of Nyssa, we, I firmly believe, we don't have the formalized doctrine of the Trinity without God working somehow in Greek thought, specifically Platonic thought and into Neoplatonic thought, to give us the the sorts of categories like, you know, having something be of the same substance, and we talk about the essence of something, and that God is God is three persons sharing one eternal essence. You know, that sort of language to say that the Son is of the same substance and essence as the Father, that doesn't happen without God somehow, in some way, working within that culture to tell his meta-story about reality in the redemptive arc of creation. As Augustine looked back on his past Manichaean philosophy, he concluded that the Manichaeans were asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't be, what is the source of evil? Rather, the question should be, what is evil? For Augustine, evil is that which is contrary to essence and substance, which substance, again, in this Neoplatonic worldview, substance is the most central material part of something. Quote, evil is that which falls away from essence and tends towards non-existence. Sound familiar? Right? This is not all that different from Gregory of Nyssa. This is not all that different from Origen. This is not really all that different from Plotinus. Evil is that which is hurtful, quote, for without the loss of good, there can be no hurt, end quote. Augustine is very much in keeping with the prior Christian tradition, a Christian tradition that does fit within this Platonic, and at this point in history, a Neoplatonic uh, worldview and framework that sees evil not as a thing in and of itself, but that which moves away towards the good. And without the loss of good, there is no hurt or suffering. So suffering and hurt emerges as we lose the good, as we move away from the good. Quote, God is the good, and all things which he has made are good, though not so good as he who made them. For what madman would venture to require that the work should equal the workman, the creatures, the creator? End quote. This reflects earlier hypotheses about why there's evil. Perhaps this is just a contingency of having a distinction between a creator and a creation, and that within that distinct creation there is potentiality. Moral agents or rational minds may misuse that potentiality. In that insight from Augustine, which again is like not original to Augustine, this this is something that we've been able to trace back to prior church fathers who realize, well, maybe, maybe this, if you're going to have a distinction between creator and creation, they have to be different, right? Sometimes people, as we kind of think about, you know, what would it look like if there was no evil or even the potentiality for evil, if there was no hurt or loss in the universe, what would we have? We would have God, right? We would have only the pure good, only the true, only the beautiful. 
And that's why, you know, I brought up that question about Gregory of Nyssa's understanding of 1 Corinthians 15, 28, and his prediction, if you could call it that, that one day all that will be will be God. God will be all and all. And if that's the case, we don't have a creation, right? Like, is, is this necessary? Is a necessary feature of having a distinction between God and something that isn't God mean that there's the potentiality for that thing to move in a direction away from God, to, to make manifest in its essence and in its substance that which isn't good, true, and beautiful? Is this just a logical necessity for having a creation that's different than the Creator? In 392, Augustine wrote, there are two kinds of evil, sin and the penalty of sin. In that way, Augustine sounds in many ways like Tertullian. If we remember back to Tertullian, who is trying to harmonize these pictures in the Old Testament and the New Testament up against the Marcionite heresy. Again, if we remember back, Marcion was the one who suggested that the God of the Old Testament was the lesser evil demiurge, kind of fitting within that Gnostic system. He didn't recognize the Old Testament as scripture at all. And so Tertullian was writing during a time in which Marcionism was gaining traction. And one of the things that uh, Tertullian tried to do is try to harmonize this picture, the pictures of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it was it was Tertullian that suggested, right, in that difficult passage in Isaiah 45, that we have evil that is the result of people's sin, but that God actually, we, we actually experience some suffering in this world that's the result of the penalty of sin, but we shouldn't consider that evil because it's a corrective movement, even though it's suffering, it's to keep us from worse and further suffering. So in that way, Augustine, you know, it sounds, sounds like Tertullian. Around that same time, and these timestamps in Augustine's work are crucial because we're, we're going to see here that Augustine goes through some changes in thought over time. So in 392, Augustine wrote, there's two kinds of evil, sin and penalty of sin. Augustine also admits very early on that he's got no idea why that first movement away from the good ever happened. Why, why is it within the wills of rational creatures? Like, why does that first movement happen? What causes that first movement away from the good? Why does someone, in particular Satan, why does he ever move away from the good? You know, we could think of it like this. What tempted Satan to misuse his potentiality? Augustine admits very early on in his career that he's got no idea why that first movement away from the good ever happened, but assures that sin is, quote, effective movement and a defect that comes from nothing, end quote. God in his goodness will not allow that defective movement to continue on into total non-existence. And very early on, as early as 388 AD, sounding very much like Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine wrote, But the goodness of God 
does not permit the accomplishment of this end, but so orders that all things that fall away, that they may exist wherever their existence is most suitable, till in the order of their movements they return to that from which they fell away. End quote. That sounds an awful lot like Origen and Gregory of Nyssa. And it makes sense because as Augustine is still kind of working within this Neoplatonic framework that, remember, Gregory of Nyssa was the one that said that evil was the, and sin was the retrocession of the soul from the beautiful. Origen goes, or like Origen, I should say, Augustine goes, there's no way that God in his goodness will allow that defective movement to continue on in his creation all the way until creation ceases to exist. So what will he do in the order that their movements, he, he, he allows them to, in a temporary time, it, you know, this is very similar to Origen's school of thought where he thought there was this second creation, right? So the pre-existent rational soul takes on this experience in the material world, and the material world is good because it's a school for the soul, it's a hospital for the soul. Early Augustine sounds fairly similar to Origen and Gregory of Nyssa. You know, the, 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 the soul, the rational minds that fell away, and even very early on, there's hints that Augustine might have actually believed similar to Origen in this pre-existent soul. We shouldn't think of that as outlandish and strange because, again, that's just like, that is the world that Augustine lives in. Now, to be clear, later in Augustine's life, he, he makes it quite clear that that particular way of thinking about the soul is not something that he continues to believe the rest of his life, and we'll get, that, get to that in a moment. But if this pre-existent soul had a fall, if these rational minds, if something in creation, there was a fall before there was this material world. Perhaps God is ordering that these fallen souls stay in existence until it's time for them to return to that from which they fell away. In that same letter, which you can find that, guys, on the morals of the Manichaeans, again, that was written in 388, all of the stuff you can access online for free. The classic Christian ethereal library is a good place to find writings from all over church history, but especially these, these early church fathers. In that same letter, Augustine also seems to express agreement with Origen's idea of the pre-existent souls, and that perhaps the soul's embodiment was part of a sort of judgment of God. You know, not in the same way that the Manichaeans thought the material world was evil. No, this judgment of God is actually merciful. It's good. And it's going to lead towards the restoration of the soul. But again, this is something that Augustine much later clearly denounces when writing to Jerome. And as we head into the fifth century, we begin to see shifts in Augustine's theology and philosophy, especially as he becomes embroiled in a fierce theological controversy. Augustine's work from this era is among the most important theological and philosophical works in all of human history, and it lays the foundation for how Christians for millennia afterwards will think not only about the problem of evil, but they'll think about salvation, hell, free will, and predestination. 
It's one of the most important time periods in Christian theological history. By 397, we see evidence of shifts in Augustine's thought. Augustine wrestles with how the historic Christian belief that God created out of nothing can fit within his current explanation of what evil is. What does it mean for created beings to be created from nothing and yet be created good? By 414, Augustine becomes embroiled in a series of tense theological debates, first with Pelagius and then Bishop Julian of Aclanum. Julian was an ardent supporter of Pelagius' theology, and what made him such a difficult theological rival to Augustine in that time was Julian had such a high reputation for ethics and character and his care for the poor, and simultaneously, he was more than an intellectual match to Augustine and a, a brilliant writer in and of himself. What was this debate between Augustine, Pelagius, and Julian of Aclanum all about? Well, it revolved around these central features. One, are humans sinful and prone to misuse their will by their very nature? And two, if so, how? So if humans are sinful by their very nature, if they are born with a dispensation towards the misuse of their will, how does this come about, right? Is this by some already fallen pre-existent soul? That would be in keeping with origins theology, right? The, the predisposition of human beings to, to move away towards the good is because their soul in the pre-existent state had already moved away from the good. Both Pelagius and Julian flat out deny this, and they say, no, the soul comes into existence at the moment of conception. Your soul doesn't pre-exist, just like your body doesn't pre-exist. God essentially generates or creates for each person their own individual soul. Okay, so if it's not by a pre-existent soul then, and if it's each individual soul comes into being on its own, is this inherent sinfulness then transferred to us from the first sinner, Adam? And if so, how? And as we start to think about the logical process by which we would get sin transferred to us, and if it's not by some sort of fallen, pre-existent soul that we are just embodying, does that transfer of sin happen in the act of procreation, does sexual reproduction create sinful souls? Again, Pelagius and subsequently Julian of Aclanum taught that humans were created good by God, but did have the capacity of free will to either move towards the good or to misuse it. In many ways, we just have to confess, and again, I'm not a Pelagian, at least I don't think I am, <laughs> you know. In many ways, much of what they claimed didn't sound all that different from that of Gregory of Nyssa, Origen, Justin Martyr, and others. The concern for Augustine and others emerged out of a logical question. Okay, so let's say Pelagius and Julian of Aclanum are correct. Let's say God individually, you know, in the act of procreation, 
the human body and the soul are formed at the same time by God individually. And let's say that that soul is created good, but as with the rest of creation, it has the capacity and potentiality to move in many directions, which means to also be able to move away from the good. So if the will is free to move towards the good, then couldn't one, in theory, continue through a sheer act of will all the way to salvific union with God, all, in a sense, on their own? This was the concern for Augustine and others, because if that's the case, what's the point of Jesus? And what do we do with all this Pauline theology in particular, which seems to be saying that if you could will yourself into living perfectly with God's commands, if you could will yourself, in a sense, into living perfectly with the good, then the law of Moses would have been sufficient. And it seems like Paul makes pretty clear that that's not the case. And then what's the point of Jesus? This is obviously a big concern. It's a great question for Augustine and others to wrestle with, because if that soul in and of itself isn't inheriting a predisposition to move away towards God and is actually free to move to him, couldn't you just move all the way to him on your own? And just to be clear, you know, neither Pelagius nor Julian of Aclanum thought that you could do that without the assistance of God's grace. And this is in some ways, you know, the Julian of Aclanum... Um, in particular, because we have more from Julian's writings than we do really know of Pelagius, but Julian is the probably foremost Pelagian theologian of that day. We, we do know that, in a certain sense, Julian and Augustine are, are kind of talking past each other <laughs> in this debate. It may be, may be that neither one of them really gets the concerns that the other person has. Julian's got concerns about the implication of, of Augustine's theology, which we'll lay out in a second, and what that means for our understanding of God's goodness. Well, if God did create in each individual soul, he's actually active in that process, and he is the one that's creating it with the inherent propensity to, to do evil. I mean, that's what kind of God is that, right? That's, the you know, Julian and Pelagius have serious questions about that. And you can kind of see that, right? Simultaneously, you know, they're, they're probably more concerned about the ethical implications where Augustine might be more concerned about the soteriological. That means, you know, soteriology is the study of salvation in Christian theology. And Augustine is concerned about the soteriological implications of this and whether this means we actually don't need Jesus. Augustine's response to Pelagius and Julian becomes one of the most crucial theological moments in human history. And this carries massive implications on our own questions around evil, suffering, God's justice, damnation, and more. In an effort to make a case for the logical necessity of Christ's work, and to defend his understanding of Pauline theology, Augustine counters Pelagianism by teaching that, first, one, souls are not individually created by God at the moment of conception. 
And again, for Pelagius and Julian, they are created good if they're created by God, right? Because what's the alternative? <laughs> this, is, this is so tough. Oh my goodness, this is so tough. You can see why. This is so crucial, a crucial moment in history. It's like Christians are, are really thinking through the implications of this philosophically there. And these are massive questions, right? Like, what are, what's, what's Pelagius and Julian? Again, I'm not trying to defend them. It's like with anybody in theological and history, and not just that, like in real life, one of the points of this entire podcast is so that we would learn how to listen to other people and not demonize them right away because they might have a unique way of thinking that, you know, we just haven't thought about the same questions as them. Right? And we don't want to assume that people are sinister and malevolent right away. Well, you know, maybe we should. <laughs> That's the kind of gets the whole point of this. Are people inherently malevolent? Should we distrust them or should we consider them as created good by God? Pelagius and Julian, they're concerned, right? Well, all right. If the soul is not individually created by God, well, then where does it come from? If it is individually created by God, but it's not created good, good, aren't we in this sort of Gnostic problem then? Is God a lesser God? Is he working with less materials? He's like, well, I'd love to make a good soul, but I can't. Oh man, this is so tough. So again, Augustine counters Pelagianism by teaching souls are not individually created by God at the moment of conception. Rather, the soul is already fallen before you are conceived. And again, early on, it seems like Augustine might have espoused to a view similar to Plotinus and Origen in the pre-existence of the soul or rational minds. But it's clear later in his life, as the Pelagian debate raged on, it really, it, you know, maybe clear is too strong of a word, but it certainly appears that Augustine moves away from that more neoplatonic, metaphysical, sort of fallen pre-existent soul theory to another explanation, all right? So buckle up because you, you need to get this one, all right? So later in his life, it really appears Augustine moves away from that more neoplatonic, fallen pre-existent soul theory to another explanation. How are human souls already predisposed to move away from the good? And this is what Augustine thought. We inherit Adam's sinful soul hereditarily in the act of sexual procreation because we are all biological descendants of Adam. I know biological wouldn't have been a word that, that Augustine would have used, but you get the point. Because we're all biological descendants of Adam, we all inherit through his seed a depraved soul that is in need of saving, or what some in later more reformed circles would call regeneration. The soul is already born into this world, broken, dead in their sins, right? The trajectory of the soul is already moving away from the good before you are even out of the womb. 
So it must be saved and regenerated again. Like this is, you know, we have to you know, step into Augustine's shoes because a lot of you that are going to hear that, you know, what are you talking about, Augustine? But Augustine's really trying to figure out, all right, you know, I, I don't know about this whole fallen pre-existent soul thing. I don't know if that's biblical. I can't find that there. All right, how do we make sense of this and the need for Christ and the need for Christ's salvation? Why did Christ have to come? Well, maybe again, it's because we are already born into the world with this predisposition towards sin. All of sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So what would, what we would have to happen in order for our souls to be saved and rescued from the inevitable judgment is that something is going to have to step in to save our depraved soul because it can't head towards the good now. It's stuck in reverse. It's going to need to be regenerated so that it can be reoriented towards the good. How does that happen? Augustine proposes that it's actually passed down to us in a sense we could say biologically when your parents had sex, (laughs) right? And this in some way is, you know, for this period in church history and later in church history helps explain the adamant defense of the virgin birth of Christ. Not to gross you out, and you know, you know, probably if your kids are in the room, hopefully you've already, you know, young kids that don't get the birds and the bees yet, like in my house, you know, hopefully you've already had an opportunity to pause this podcast and kick them out of the room or something. If we're going to get to the nitty gritty details, like Christ can be sinless then because if we're going to get to the real nitty gritty details, the sinful soul is actually passed on in the semen, the sperm of the man. Okay, so this is one way that Augustine kind of can kind of help this whole thing make sense. All right, so how is it that Christ wasn't sinful? How is it that we are? How is it that he's able to save and redeem and be fully human? Okay, virgin birth. That means ah, bingo. That means somehow, some way. In the act of sex, that the sperm, this man seed, is the thing that transmits the original sin. Wow, right? This is this is so important, guys, because up until this point in church history, um, you know, nobody's quite laid out. You know, we've got Origen and Gregory of Nyssa kind of laying out this sort of more neoplatonic metaphysical thing but augustine's kind of getting into the biological the plumbing of this of this transmission of sin this original sin makes us incapable of actually willing the good because the fundamental nature of our soul is oriented towards evil which then would make our default destination damnation unless that trajectory away from the good is intercepted by God's grace and we experience a conversion or regeneration of our souls. In response to this idea, Julian accuses Augustine of adopting his old Manichaean ways. If sin has contaminated even the material process by which humans are conceived, 
condemning humans even in the covenant of marriage to feel guilty for procreating, then how is God's creation good at all? Even worse, doesn't this teaching from Augustine mean that a baby that dies without the regeneration of their soul via grace through faith in Christ will be damned to hell? Doesn't this also mean that every single person who ever lived is brought into the world as condemned sinners because one person or one couple sinned? If that's the case, doesn't this call into question the very goodness and justice of God? And Julian is also concerned about how this belief undercuts ethical instruction. These are such good questions. I mean, these are good questions on both sides. Both sides of this debate are bringing up questions that are like, man, if this means this, then what? (laughs) It's fascinating. In book 11 and 12 of The City of God by Augustine, he tries to make clear that he completely rejects the Manichaean dualism of his past that would turn all of creation into a fundamentally evil state. He rejects the idea of any external force tempting Satan and the first angels to fall away. And again, Augustine points to that being uh, the, just in keeping with prior church fathers, that that happened first. The human falling away, the falling away of humanity happens after that. But there is no external force. There's no evil inherent in creation that is the thing that tempts Satan. And this is where for some people, you know, as he continues to give an explanation and try to defend that he's not a Manichaean, he says some things that seem like they might be a logical inconsistency, but I think that might, this might deserve further reflection. Augustine says that the perversion of the will arises as an inherent deficiency in the will itself. Trying to find that deficiency, though, or to give an explanation for it is logically impossible. It's like trying, quote, it's like trying to hear darkness or see silence, end quote. Again, maybe the best theoretical explanation for the possibility of this deficiency is that God cannot create God. Because God cannot create what is uncreated, if God is to create at all, his creation must have the potentiality for non-being and corruption. Without that potentiality, They would be pure actuality. Creation would be God. It's in the city of God that Augustine argues against the belief in the ultimate reconciliation of all things, or Christian universalism, which we find in Origen and Gregory of Nyssa's work. Something that when arguing against the Gnostics early in his life, he seemed to have actually agreed with. Augustine continues in the Platonic belief in the immortality of the soul, but but he rejects that all souls will ultimately be reconciled. He he bases this rejection on his understanding of Scripture, in particular what he believed was the clear teaching of eternal punishment and eternal fire in places like Matthew 25, 41. And you can read more about that in Book 21 of The City of God. Augustine also argues that because God exists outside of time, again, a concept firmly accepted in this Neoplatonic philosophical culture, that God has eternally known 
what souls will be saved and what souls will not be saved. Not only that, but God has determined all human history. Question that comes up for you right away, you know, is, all right, how is that compatible with free will? If God has eternally known what souls will be saved and what souls will not be saved as he exists outside of time and and God and not only knows but has determined all of human history, how is that compatible with free will? Augustine still tries to defend free will, but he confesses that defending free will in this framework that seems deterministic is a mystery that theologians and philosophers would later refer to as compatibilistic free will or compatibilism. Side note here, it's very common in evangelical and Protestant circles when questions come up about free will versus determinism, about things that we might call limited atonement, does God want or desire all to be saved? Has he predestined some to be damned? All of those sorts of questions. People will commonly ask you, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Pet peeve. I hate that. <laughs> I hate that. I'll share some of my own thoughts on this. I hate that because it presupposes that that debate started only several hundred years ago in the Reformation. Guys, this is this is stuff that goes way, way back. You know, if you're somebody that is defending um, more of a libertarian free will, that doesn't make you an Arminian right away. If you're somebody that's in defense of uh, compatibilist free will, or you just flat out want to defend total, total determinism, that doesn't make you a Calvinist. You can be a Catholic and uh, be a you know, defender of compatibilist free will. In fact, that's probably what most Catholics are. When we get to Aquinas, we'll see that too as well. So this is a conversation that goes way, way, way before the um, Calvinist-Arminian debate. All right, all right, back onto the main trail. All right. In many ways, Augustine, as we'll see, remains as the pillar of theology in the Western world for the rest of history, even up to this point while Gregory of Nyssa remains as a pillar in the Eastern tradition. It's, it's interesting to imagine what Christian history would have looked like if instead of Pelagius and Julian being condemned and exiled as heretics, it would have been Augustine. Do I think Pelagius had some things off? Most certainly. Did Augustine? Well, how do you feel about the damnation of babies or forcing people to convert to Christianity using torture and violence? Augustine defended both of those things. Augustine is revered in Catholic and most Protestant circles alike. His theology is foundational to understanding everyone from Thomas Aquinas to Martin Luther and John Calvin. Well, that concludes today's episode, and I want to invite you to reach out to me on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you guys as you've gone through this episode. This is a massively important episode. What do you like and dislike about the theodicy of Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine? What sorts of questions do you still have about 
their theodicy and their entire theological framework. Which one would you rather hang out with and grab a beer with? (laughs) I'd love to hear from you guys and hear what you've been learning and the questions that have arisen as you've been going through this podcast series. I encourage you again to go back and listen to the previous ones if you haven't got all caught up on them yet. I really can't do this podcast without the support of those in the Deep Talks Patreon community. People like Paul R., Luke H., Elizabeth, Michael, Josh A., Sam, Tim K. You guys, I so appreciate those of you that are contributing and supporting even above and beyond that initial $2 level. I'm so thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for all of you. Boy, everybody, uh, you know, new supporter JP. JP, thanks for your support. Dan, Michael, Jared, Grant, thank you guys. Oh, it's such, uh, Carolyn, you as well. I'm so thankful that you guys consider this work valuable and you consider the, the this podcast to be worth supporting. I thank you guys. Can't do without you. It's so encouraging and uh, it's helping other people jump into this conversation to to wrestle with theology to wrestle with their deep questions of life and meaning and to to try to hopefully find the answers in the in the the christian story right before they get so hurt and disenfranchised that they move on to some other story and something that i don't think would be true good or beautiful If you want to become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can check that out. I provide a link in the description. And just as a thank you, there's always bonus content like last week put out a, or maybe a week and a half ago, put out a bonus episode just for those people supporting this work. And so you can become a member and by following the link in the description. If you want to support in other ways and help other people discover this podcast and help them grow and help them to be able to see theology everywhere and everything that they do and everything that's around them. You know, another simple way is just by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's still the number one place people are listening and finding podcasts and your review goes a long way to helping people figure out, oh, is this something worth checking out? So thank you guys who have done that. I appreciate that too as well. Again, if you have questions, please reach out to me. I want to have dialogue about this stuff. Um, I don't want you just listening to me and going, oh, that was great. I I really want to have a back and forth and maybe you can connect with other people as well who are also going through some of the same questions and trying to sort through some of the same problems theologically and in their life and in their their meaning-making endeavor. So I hope you would do that. Until next time, thank you guys.